Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. My name is Tracy Morgan, uh, your host. And today we'll be speaking with Dr. Jameson Webster about her new publication, her new book, The Life and Death of Psychoanalysis, um, published by Karnak, 2011. Dr. Webster is affiliated with three very interesting and not always related institutes, actually. She's uh, affiliated with the New York Psychoanalytic Institute, which is uh, this year celebrating its 100th anniversary. She's also affiliated with the Institute for Psychoanalytic Training and Research, and as well as with the Lacanian Institute here in New York, APRECU. She is widely and well and deeply informed in things Lacanian and has set her sights on thinking about what's happening. Why is psychoanalysis often and repeatedly being declared on the verge of death? And what is at stake with its life and its death? But this is not just a book that's about uh, the profession per se, although it asks very important questions of the profession. It's also a book in which we experience the nexus of uh, philosophy vis-a-vis Adorno and Badiou and psychoanalytic thinking. She asks us questions about why we seek knowledge and what we think knowledge and having knowledge as analysts will do for us. She pursues ethics, writing, psychoanalytic writing, psychoanalytic training, mourning, and of course, desire. She suggests that, and I'm going to quote her here, to declare that the unconscious exists without righteousness or justification is an inherently weak position that we must bear out if our discipline is to have any effect on truth. So we're looking forward to a delightful interview. And without further ado, let's get to it. So Jameson, I have enjoyed your book. (laughs) It's been very thought-provoking. I wanted to say two things um, in beginning the interview. One is that um, you... uh, what, as I read this book, I began to dream profoundly, <laughs> much more so. Somehow my dream life went through the roof. And um, I think that uh, the text um, stirred, uh, stirred something in my unconscious. I mean, at times I hated the book. It made me feel stupid. Uh, and I don't like to feel stupid. But it also uh, prompted me um, to reckon with how little I know and how unimportant um, I think, as you stress again and again, knowing um, or knowledge um, uh, in the end is um, in our work as analysts. Um, understanding is not important. My uh, my deceased analyst, Phyllis Meadow, used to say to me all the time, don't bother with understanding. What's the point of that? So I wanted to, to begin with a quote of yours. Um, which is, uh, you write, knowledge is drained of eros in order to pledge a future that belongs to no one. Psychoanalysis was always a hollowed out promise, mere words which cannot sustain themselves without submitting to this passion for being, passion always being something precarious. So uh, I wanted to ask you, um, in, uh, to kick off our interview, what, what prompted you to, um, to write this book? 
Lord, what prompted me to write this book? Yeah. Uh, you know that it's an, it's an iteration of my dissertation, but one that was sort of radically rewritten, I think, after the time that I finally got out of graduate school. Um, and the question of knowledge just in relationship to that is interesting. I just felt myself sort of balking against the project of writing a dissertation or the very idea that what a dissertation is supposed to be um, in the way that that also sort of fitted with the question of training, psychoanalytic training, mm -hmm. that what you're supposed to do is demonstrate your knowledge. It's as if I couldn't do this. I literally couldn't do it. Um, and I had to find another way to write and I had to find another way to speak about what it is that was important to me during that time. And my good fortune was that I found people who were with me on this project and who understood that as being a really interesting question to ask about psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and, and, and my psychoanalytic training or the period in which I sort of see as the most formative period of my psychoanalytic training or formation, if you want to put it that way, was also at the time that I was in graduate school. So it felt to me as if these two things were colliding. Um, and, you know, Lacan talks about the fact that, you know, what you're undergoing when you're undergoing your own personal analysis and you're trying to ask these questions about what it means to listen as, as an analyst at the exact same time, um, sometimes means that you need to speak about it or you need to write about it. Right. Um, and, and I think that the way in which he heard that probably in his patients and in his students, um, and the way in which I felt that as well, um, sort of engendered the project that is strangely this book at the end of everything. Right. Um, and you know, you're not the first person who's told me that whatever it is that takes place in this book allows them to dream. I'd be hard pressed to say that I have, I have any idea of what that is, um, except for the fact that maybe an encounter with another person's desire sparks your own. I think, I think that that's, that makes a lot of sense because the, the book opens up, um, it doesn't close anything. It actually opens up a tremendous amount and, uh, really got me, um, sort of un uncomfortable and uneasy in a, in a way that I felt was truly, uh, was generative. Um, as you looked at, you know, sort of analytic training and, and actually asking the question, should, you know, what, what would it mean, um, for psychoanalysis, uh, to die? Um, given the, this title, I wanted to ask you, um, of course, the title, I guess, references uh, Laplanche, Life and Death in Psychoanalysis. I thought about Norman O. Brown. I was like, God, there's a lot. This title has a, a lot of resonance. What, talk to us about the title, because I think people uh, will find it very, it, it, may, it, it makes a lot of uh, sort of quick and unconscious sense um, to those of us in the profession. But I, could you say more about your choice of the title? It's, you know, there's, <laughs> there's been this funny reaction, which is like, how can you write a book with a title like that? It's so, <laughs> it's so big, you know, it's so grandiose. Yep. Um, and, you know, it's funny because when I think about it, it was just sort of this natural title because it's, it's a play on one of the dreams in the book, mm -hmm. right? The dream where I find this, this letter um, of my grandmother telling me that Laplanche's book, Life and Death, Psychoanalysis, would come to be a very important text. Um, and so when you realize that it's a, it's just a play on a signifier from a dream that it's sort of a sliding into a whole series of meanings, it, it, it can't be grandiose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think maybe to take down a little bit the question of what it means to sort of devote your life 
to psychoanalysis um, into the place where it has to make sense only through this sort of circulation of meanings. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if it's Norman O'Brown, if it's Laplanche, if it's just the fact that we keep talking about Eros and the death drive again and again and again. Mm-hmm. Um, and even you know, now we hear so much about the death of psychoanalysis. Right. I mean, it, it, everyone wants to proclaim that it's dead or they want to say that it's still living and to try and force us to ask a question about what it means when, you know, we're feeling uneasy in our profession or the resistance to the profession in general, which is always there by virtue of the quote that you read that desire is precarious. And this That's is right. what we do. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I think that uh, that the um, every August, you know, patients come in and they say, Oh, New York Magazine just wrote another article about uh, how you know pointless psychoanalysis is, how it doesn't work, how it, there's it, it, there, there's no studies that show that it does anything, and um, I guess I wanted to um, to get you to talk about that because you really embrace uh, my sense is you embrace that position. What is psychoanalysis um, supposed to quote do anyway? Um, yeah. So, you know, are we are we there to make are we there to help? Uh, what, what are we? What is what is psychoanalysis um, to be to be doing? And the pressure that analysts feel now, given that uh, um, our profession is often um, deemed useless and pointless, um, and you seem to embrace the useless, uh, pointless uh, aspect. If I understand you, is that right? Yeah, I love this. I mean, I, this this was something I had written into the book afterwards, but this quote by Jacques Derrida that's in the preface where he says um, about Freud in his article to speculate on Freud, how can an autobiographical writing in the abyss of an unterminated self-analysis give to a worldwide institution its birth? <laughs> <laughs> it's such an amazing quotation. And, and he doesn't, and the, what is so amazing to hear is that he doesn't mean this in any negative sense at all. Mm-hmm. This is what psychoanalysis makes possible. Some strange act mm-hmm. um, of looking at yourself can create a worldwide institution. It can create a thousand analysts that follow in line from this one act of sort of crossing a certain threshold. Right. Um, and to believe that what we have to do is answer the calls of the day to justify ourselves, I think, is the wrong position to take. You know, explain to me what it is that you do. Justify your your profession, you know, tell me what your cure is. I think that, that we cannot, we, we can't give in to this demand. And they were always there. Right. That's right. Um, you write about um, having to um, overcome a blinding uh, disappointment, I think is your quote, in the, in the field, the fields uh, that I, my sense was you see as often enough taking uh, up the position that the neurotic demand for love and knowledge can be met. Um, can you describe a bit um, this sort of coming to terms with this blinding disappointment um, in the field? It's interesting because when I was um, the one sort of point that I had stopped at when I was thinking about speaking with you today was the fact that the book hinges on this moment, I think, of blinding disappointment. And then I was thinking, and I hadn't thought of this when I had written it, but the play on the word blinding, like both blinding that I can't, See, but blinding also in the sort of eatable sense, right? sure. tearing her eyes out. Sure. Um, and, you know, it, it, it is a question about the end of analysis, right? There's something about disappointment that we have to face up to, or there's something about mourning and death and loss and the sort of falling away of certain ideals or expectations about what we're going to receive 
um, and everything about what we demand from our analysts for a period of time. Um, and I, and I, I did see the book as sort of turning on what, what that makes possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, my struggles with the psychoanalytic institution and my struggles with American psychoanalysis and the fragmentation of the field and the fact that, you know, <laughs> we preach one thing and then we do another when we, when we all get together in our institutional frameworks, mm-hmm. um, you know, just to try and say, like, fine, this is what it is. And why should I have expected it to be any other way? That doesn't mean that we can stop asking these questions. Mm-hmm. And I think I just desperately wanted to feel like that these questions could be put at the very beginning, that they were always at the beginning and that we can orient ourselves there, that we still have to ask about what it is that we have to know as analysts. Right. Um, and that we have to know something about what takes place in the process of going from being an analyzan to being a psychoanalyst, that there's, there's something extraordinary that takes place there. It's- and it's not 55 credits. <laughs> <laughs> years in an institute at something else. Right, right. Um, I was I was thinking about um, that it seems to me that a lot of uh, American psychoanalysis, and here I'm thinking really about the relational uh, turn, um, I, I'm always wondering why does social, cons- what, what, who cares about social construction? What, what of hermeneutics? What, what is making meaning? Um, what what are we trying to to nail down um, or to to quiet? Um, and what I loved about your book was that it really it, it turned to the uh, sort of the the position of the um, the analyst as the dupe, uh, the analyst as the one who who doesn't know. And yet in America, you know, we we really like to know things. And I think maybe our analytic training um, or a lot of it. Um, uh, reflects this i mean what what do you what do you make of the the psychoanalysts uh, work to make meaning um, you know lacan disrupted this for me in a way that was so important um you know and and this idea of, of know yourself and your analyst knows best or your analyst is the one with the sort of um the grip on interpretation and and he questions this from every end i mean he literally just just questions it outright. But then even the way in which he starts to read Freud or the way that he starts, starts to work with philosophy or, you know, it even goes back to just Plato who, who sort of never really knows anything. And he, his sort of questioning stance is what allows this, this, this speech to flourish in the other person. Um, You know, Lacan goes back to this and I, you know, you cannot read Lacan if you want to know. And right away, you're confronted with that. I mean, I, I'm sorry for putting you through it with my own book and making you feel stupid, but it's not as if yeah. I did not feel stupid for years with Lacan. And you realize that this desire to know, to sort of master meaning, to sort of lock it down, this will never help you go forward. Right. And I love that confrontation. It opens up so much the minute that you see the way your own neurosis is pulled into what it means to continue to read him. And exactly what you have to shed in order to sort of move forward. And then, and then this whole world opens up. You know, and he, he, he spoke for 28 years in front of an audience just about psychoanalysis. It's an incredible act. 
Um, and it took a lot of dedication. I can't imagine doing that. Being someone who teaches, it's exhausting and you want to give the same course so that you don't have to do something new, you know, year after year. But he did something new every single year for 28 years. Right. And I think that you could only do that if you've managed, managed to sort of push knowledge out of the frame a little bit. Right. To the side. In fact, uh, I think in my, my experience of reading Lacan is that I end up uh, completely uh, dumbfounded and sort of I, I have a physical swirling sensation and I go, I have no idea. And then weeks later, I'm thinking, that did something to me. I mean, I have to say your book did something to me, which uh, I haven't had, uh, I haven't read something in the field in a while um, that has done, has given me an experience, mm -hmm. uh, which, um, uh, which I really, uh, I appreciate. I think it's, it's, you raised the question in the book about, you know, what, what are we going to, what, what's going on with psychoanalytic um, uh, writing? Um, you know, you, I think you say something about uh, that the, uh, uh, what, the écriture féminin is done, you know, um, and uh, what's going to, what new, oh, here's the quote, what new reinvigoration of psychoanalysis at this level of the written is still possible? And then you ask, what danger is there in relation to writing that is preventing new forms from developing? And I thought, you know, you've developed a new form here, but but do you have any sort of a an answer to that kind of a question? I'm asking for some knowledge. <laughs> what danger is there? Uh you know, is what is the danger, I wonder? I think that there's a lot of security that you can get by hiding behind a, a kind of writing or a kind of discourse that takes up the sort of mantle of knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, I think that there's a lot of ways in which you, you never really expose yourself in that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the danger of inventing something new is... Um, the danger of what you're going to show. And, you know, for, it's a complicated term, but for Lacan, you know, it takes a kind of castration, mm -hmm. right? It, it takes a kind of submission, um, a subjection, you know, to yourself, uh, in order to produce something like this. I mean, this is what your patients do. I mean, they have to experiment with what it means to speak in all kinds of different ways in front of you. Um, and it's terrifying. And, you know, I don't, I feel, and maybe this is too much of a demand, I feel like we, we should mirror what we ask our patients to do in some way in, in our very own work. Mm -hmm. um, and that the discordance for me has become so great that it's very hard for me to see myself as an analyst and then to be within this professionalized frame. Like, I, I, I really struggled with that disjunction. Mm -hmm. Um, and there were so many, you know, the, the period that I love so much, which is also there in the dream about La Planche, because uh, my grandmother was specifically alluding to, you know, France in the 1970s. Um, but it was this wonderful moment where everybody started to experiment. You know, that was when these these women started writing. They sort of asked what it meant to write as a woman. Right. Um, and the philosophers sort of like, like had deconstructed what it meant to be a philosopher and started, you know, these wild experiments. Like I'm going to just do a meditation on death. Um, right. And I love this. I, I think that it's absolutely generative. It's absolutely exciting. Um, you know, we need poetry in our lives. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, there's something about the professionalization of the field that, that just, it locks all of this down. 
Yeah, well, it, cert- it certainly can. I mean, I'm, my training is, you know, as a modern analyst, which listeners to this um, webcast know, and, you know, moderns, um, we never leave analysis. The only thing we don't experience is termination. I mean, it's just death. Either the analyst dies or the patient dies, but we really don't, um, we don't ever end it, And which is interesting because I'm perpetually um, an analysand as I am perpetually an analyst. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, there's never a moment of separation. And, you know, I'll go through periods saying, well, there's nothing new under the sun going to happen in this analysis. And then suddenly I'm like, oh, my God, more speaking. I don't want to speak. I want to leave. I want to get out of here. I want to run away from this. You know, I mean, this is, I'm like, this is going to be my life, uh, given, given my, my particular kind of training. Um, and I sense, uh, for, for, um, you know, colleagues from other analytic schools, it's like a graduation. Uh, <laughs> and I'm like, what did you graduate from? Yeah, not just not just the institute. But I'm like, well, but isn't your isn't the unconscious like kind of you, know, you can stop? And I under I understand that maybe I will never experience uh, the end, which is a, a whole other thing. You know that that the that the analysis comes to an end, and then and then what? And then what? But um, you know, I, wh- what are we grad what are we graduating from? You know, uh, I don't know. I, I graduating too. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> it's even worse. <laughs> Exactly. Um, so uh, I was thinking about, um, I, I mean, I have many quotes I pulled from this book, which I am, um, which I really love, like some will go in the fridge or something to help me finish up my training. Um, but you, you, you have a, a quote that I want to read. Um, Hope what you will. Psychoanalysis will remain precarious. We seem to be doing our best to back away from what has always been this precarious place of psychoanalytic truth. Science isn't going to seal up that hole and remove that abyss. Neither will any recourse to folk psychology or Lacanian mathematical formula. And um, it made me think about um, those uh, in the field or in the profession who um, are in love um, or enamored with uh, with neuroscience uh, I was thinking, what what do we what do we say about neuroscience? What would Lacan say? Do you imagine regarding the neuroscientific uh, project as it relates um, to to our work as analysts? Mm-hmm. It's funny. One of my students uh, at Lang, he's great. <laughs> Whenever we sort of talk about neuroscience, he says he says you just it's as if you just want to take a golf club to the MRI machines. He's like, am I right about that? <laughs> You're like big, and, and big pharma comes next, you know. Right. right. <laughs> um, and you know, I, I think I, what worries me the most, and this is this is you know, this is probably a very Lacanian problem, is the fetish of the visual. You know, the idea that we can see something now, you know, and that's going to help us. You know, this is really this is going to this is going to solidify the problems of psychoanalysis. I mean, I I think that there's great neuroscience out there, and there's really interesting ways of thinking about neuroscience and psychoanalysis, but there's a danger here about the sort of fetish of the visual hmm. um, that worries me. And, and then also the idea of proof. Right. You know, and, and it's not that, you know, neuroscience hasn't done amazing things for science, but we still have a lot of questions to ask about this boundary between what it is that we do as psychoanalysts with patients in this sort of mad four times a week or however many times a week one does it treatment and and what science is there to answer mm-hmm. 
Um, and and I, I worry about the prematurity of sort of running to neuroscience as a savior, right? Um, particularly because we have to hang on to what this anxiety is about. Um, this anxiety about what it means to be a psychoanalyst. I mean, it really needs to be part of our life. I mean, maybe that's what's great about getting to be in an Alizan forever. You know, there is no graduation to or from. You know, th- this anxiety is here to stay, and that's one way to keep it going. <laughs> right. And the and right in the moment of I mean, I've had two uh, two analysts die. One was a supervisor for about 14 years and the other was my analyst. And it was like, oh, the awareness that uh, that that they'll die. And then and then what? You know, well, of course, I'm in training. I have to have another analyst and I'm a modern analyst. I have to have another analyst. But it does does keep um, that anxiety can be very, uh, very generative. But we do our best to uh, to kill it. Um, it seems, and there are ways in which maybe the profession um, uh, does sort of collude with that. Like we can, we can offer, we can offer something. I know at my institute, um, we're concerned with, you know, what is what is the question of what is psychoanalytic research? Right. What is psychoanalytic research? I mean, how would do? You, how would you respond to that to that question? Uh, what is it? Um, I worked as a researcher for many, many years with um, a friend of mine who actually just passed away, Norbert Friedman, and we had we had done a number of studies together. It was uh, published in JAPA and in his new book, Another Kind of Evidence. And what was nice about the work that I did with Norbert was he wanted to preserve um, a space for psychoanalytic knowledge that could be and you know should be held as distinct. And some of the research we did was always what it meant to sort of locate that border in the work that we were doing. So, you know, you could find a statistical answer about, you know, whatever, some sort of outcome and treatment or some sort of capacity that's developed within the patient. But there's a place where the answer that we're given from it really needs a further explanation. And that further explanation, you know, is just psychoanalytic thinking, mm-hmm. <laughs> the psychoanalytic thinking that has to go along with it. Uh, even if it's just to define the realm of what we don't understand. Right. Um, and, and I think it's very hard when you're working with numerical systems and statistical systems, which are based on their own logic and their own like desire for predictability, um, that stands outside whatever this unconscious is or whatever unconscious desire is. You know, Lacan had an idea that, that there's an opposition here. This is not something that's quantifiable. Subjectivity is something that's not um, visible or researchable, right? And and you have to preserve something of that. I think it's really really important, right? And it's very it's a very again the anxiety that that uh, I think um, that idea produces a lot of anxiety. Well, well, what is it we're preserving? I can't I can't see it. I can't touch it. I can't taste it. Um, and I think that analysts are, are lured, you know, there's some, uh, some um, impossible anxiety. You know, I thought actually in reading this book, it, it brought me back to many years ago reading Janet Malcolm's uh, uh, Psychoanalysis, The Impossible Profession. Um, there's something in that, in that book that I think she really does capture the, the madness that, that, we, um, that we embrace, um, that, that is sort of what we traffic in, what we eventually are immersed um, you know, there's an immersion that that does take place, and that is that is ineffable. I mean, I I can't 
noted in myself, I can't find it, but boy, is it ever there. You know, it's a and the discomfort with sort of accepting that. Um, so, um, anyway, I'm not sure that I have a question with that, but it really, it's it's really great how your book um, embraces uh, embraces the how how much there is that's always um, unknown and ineffable. Um, you you have a really interesting. Um, cha- I mean. Let, let, let's go. Let's go over the book so people get a better sense of it. I mean, I, you know, I could, I could sort of say my my sense of it. But I, you, you know, you write about Adorno and disillusionment with him. Uh, eventually, you write about um, Lacan, of course, and you write also um, about Badiou. Mm-hmm. And um, can you say something about sort of that uh, that triumvirate and um, the place of that triumvirate um, in your in your thinking and in your writing in this book? <laughs> story of I think the thinkers that I was um, the most involved with you know for a period of time and and the idea in the book was through looking uh, something about what psychoanalysis gave to me or you know whether that's the experience of being in an Alexander what it meant to learn to listen as an analyst um, and just to approach the questions that psychoanalysis generally raises um, in relationship to these thinkers, and it, it changed something for me, both in relationship to what I want to hear, my relationship to knowledge, how I can sort of locate myself in another person's discourse. Mm-hmm. And Adorno, um, who I still love very, very much, um, became a problem for me, which was that he just, he always knew what was wrong. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's very seductive. Mm-hmm. And it was about the seduction of that position and what that probably did for me at a certain moment in my life, to be on the side of the person who knows what's wrong. Right. Um, and, and, you know, to say something about that in the book, that it's a kind of melancholic position and it, it veers towards a kind of nihilism. Um, and that it holds on to negativity in a way that doesn't really accept what's negative, but uses that negativity to sort of like lash out against the world. Yes, certainly. And, um, you know, Adorno is so important because he is someone who's responding to the traumas of the Holocaust and to trauma in general. Mm-hmm. And it is uh, like the way in which he absorbs it is what's so beautiful about his writing and also so deeply problematic about it. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't he doesn't want to let he doesn't want to let that moment happen where you might say, I can get out of this. He's so worried about that. And it was in wrestling with what it might mean to get out of it. Um, and certainly this is also a question, a psychoanalytic question that I was asking myself at that period of time where it, I needed Lacan. Mm-hmm. I needed Lacan to say, like, y- you, you need to take a step out of this. Um, and that the position that you're working in, which is, you know, <laughs> I'm going to tell you what's wrong with this world. <laughs> the, the moral masochism of that or something, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 Um, and, you know, so the book sort of moves out of, talking about Adorno in this way and towards Lacan. And one of the ways in which I see that is that Lacan's more feminine discourse, if I wanted to put it like that, opened something up for me. Um, and, and he has fascinating things to say about women and women's pleasure. And I, I really appreciate for him the way that he recentered that question, you know, what does woman want? Right. And, and, you know, he collapses that, as I say, you know, with a question of otherness, with a question of enigma, with a question of the unconscious in general. And he uses that as a sort of like interpretive mechanism. 
Um, and it, it was, it's not something that's not um, unproblematic. You know, feminists both love this and hated it. Mm-hmm. And there's many things to say about that. But I just I wanted to sort of put that back at the center. You know, that 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 he he had something to say about um, castration. He had something to say about what women could say. And he, he sort of taunts them and says, you know, come on, you women analysts, what are you going to do? <laughs> and, uh, you know, y- you must know something in particular about the unconscious. I mean, you are in a sort of exclusive position of having been forced to be the object of desire by virtue of, let's just say, socio-historical constraints. Mm-hmm. Tell me about this. Tell me what it's like. And he allowed all these women to write. There's this period where there's this explosion of women writers. Beautiful. Absolutely. Catherine Clement, Michelle Montrelet, Chris Seva. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I love that he made that possible. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I think sort of what I wanted to then do by moving to Badiou, who I think is um, a really rigorous and interesting theorist. And he sort of takes what he learned from Lacan and he is a great reader of Lacan and he just puts it to use all over the place. Um, you know, he looks at art and he looks at philosophy and he reads the entire history of philosophy and he does this crazy math theory and, uh, and, and he just, he starts to work with what Lacan makes possible. And I wanted to both show what he's able to do with that, but also where once again, I have to fall back on the psychoanalytic discourse for some reason, despite the fact that Badiou is indebted to Lacan, he will never speak about psychoanalysis. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to. He has no interest in this. Right. Um, so sort of showing how, you know, at this point I can tease my way out of that relationship. And I, you know, in, in relationship to this, I will affirm what it means to be a psychoanalyst and what's important about the psychoanalytic discourse. Yeah. My sense was that he had something to say, um, or, or in, in your encounter with him, that there was something about his relationship to the question of truth. Um, and how you were thinking about psychoanalysis. Is that right? That Badiou has something to say that you found interesting about truth. His, you know, he, he says there's two things that were very important for him in relationship to Lacan. One was that at the moment that Lacan comes onto the scene, um, you have the, the sort of beginnings of postmodernism. And postmodernism started to destroy the, or sort of deconstruct or dismantle both the concept of truth and the concept of the subject. Mm-hmm. And for him, what Lacan does is he holds on to both truth and the subject. Mm-hmm. And this was incredibly important. Like, you know, what deconstruction or what postmodern sort of relativism and constructivism brings to the table is important. But this does not mean that we just throw these concepts out. Right. And I, I think that was very important because he does. And I think what's important about it for us is that psychoanalysis also really holds on to these two ideas. That there's a subject and that there's a truth somewhere mm-hmm. for that subject. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and I, I see psychoanalysis as, as, as still sort of stuck on that turning point where we're going to have a more reified idea of truth, right? More reified idea of the individual on the one hand. And on the other hand, that we are in danger of sort of, you know, a, a sort of free for all, anything goes, relativism, uh-huh. you know, sort of like too much, just like construct your own narrative, um, you know, which is not how I see the unconscious. Right. Right, we don't get to uh, to to quote choose it, and it's sort of very a very American idea. I'll make a choice about my unconscious. Really, 
Good, good luck. Um, you know, you write, you also, um, I was really taken, I, I, I'm thinking a lot about, uh, sort of debates, um, regarding, uh, trauma, sexual abuse, seduction theory, you know, that seem to be, um, percolating again pretty powerfully. Um, if I'm, you know, I'm always like looking at new texts and, uh, you know, for, you know, to interview, um, you know, psychoanalysts here, um, on the webcast. And I'm amazed by how important trauma is, uh, right now. Um, it seems to be, um, sort of a, a really important term, dissociation, trauma, um, and you write um, that you're slightly amused, so I felt like we were maybe in tandem here for a moment. You're slightly amused by the fact that we have come back around to the original argument concerning the seduction theory mm-hmm. in psychoanalysis. Could you could you say more about your um, your amusement or <laughs> your reaction um, to that? There's a moment when I was writing um, about Badiou towards the end, and, and this question of you know what's what's real and what's not real um what's inside and what's external um the sort of irrevocability of a kind of seduction that's traumatic always (laughs) a sexuality that's always traumatic for everybody but the necessity also of the traumas of our life i mean it's not as if there aren't real things that happen to us that have a huge impact but the definition around that it could be something very small which is something that I wrote about when I was talking um, in the chapter, what do women know, mm-hmm. um, you know, about the sort of absence in my life and the way that I, I sort of found how that's structured, mm-hmm. like so many, so many parts of my unfolding story. Um, and, you know, we, <laughs> we have to maintain some ambiguity around these questions. You know, we want to sort of rush and say, oh, this is a fantasy. Or we want to rush and say, no, 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 it's a trauma. Right. And, you know, psychoanalysis has to preserve these, 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 these places as sites of contestation. Right. You know, our patients have to ask this question and we have to not rush to answer it and see, in fact, what answers they come to. Right. right. What's true about it for them. Right. To not let something collapse, to maintain the tension um, that's necessary to, to pursue, um, to help the patient to say more, the analysis and to always, always say more. Um, yeah, I was. I guess you know, I was struck. I, I um, the other night I went to hear um, Jameson speak um, at the New York Psychoanalytic Institute, and it was a really fascinating talk um, on uh, Hamlet and on desire. And um, uh, at the end of sort of our time, um, an analyst, I presume, in the room um, was asked a question. Um, I don't know. He said something about. Um, problem, you know, with psychoanalysis today, like what might cause its death, I guess, so to speak, was that um, it lacked, uh, it, it, it's it, the, the move that if we don't embrace what's interpersonal, um, we're really at risk of sort of ruining or killing um, psychoanalysis, which I, I was sort of, I was taken aback by. I, I wondered, I maybe think that the interpersonal runs, too much interpersonal runs the risk of of ruining psychoanalysis, but I, but I wanted to hear your thoughts about about that uh, that kind of a tension between the intrapsychic and the uh, and the interpersonal on the American scene. Do uh, and you have thoughts about that? I do. I mean, it's something that I've struggled with because having sort of been brought up on Freud through Lacan, mm-hmm. uh, 
it, it makes it difficult to understand the ways in which these polarities have played out here. So, I mean, I feel like I'm of a generation where I understand where the relational and the interpersonal movements have been a reaction to a kind of more classical framework and what they felt that left out. But it's not the way that I was taught to read Freud. And Lacan is very subtle on this interplay. I mean, if you look at the mirror stage, it's this incredible unfolding dialectic between the interpsychic and the interpersonal. Mm-hmm. Right? And the question of desire itself is not unconditioned by the outside world, although it remains something that's constructed internally in a way that we have no power over. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and, and how we find our way with our desire um, in the Lacanian sense is, is never going to be something that's just an intrapsychic piece of work. I mean, his idea, and, and which I sort of try and push throughout the book, is that we have to make something of our desire in the world. This is the hinge of our connection to the world and to others. Um, and so I, I find it so hard, these arguments, where, you know, everyone is angry at each other for having something out. And I'm sort of like, I don't have this problem. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Arguments, this political argument about this. I want to I want to talk about psychoanalysis. Um, and I, I see this in my students, too, who feel sort of bewildered by the American scene. Yeah. And it feels like arguments that, that are old. Mm-hmm. And that we should we shouldn't we shouldn't we shouldn't leave out what the stakes of them were. Right. We should have a way of moving forward. <laughs> right. 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 Not a yeah. Because it seems to be like, well, does the the analyst really exist in America? The analyst has needs in America. The and it's very um, it seems to me so a very a very American position. You know the 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 fantasy of transparency. Uh, revealing the the counter you know the the counter transference um, democracy um, these are these are questions that I mean you get the sense you know from Lacan like democracy right what does democracy have to do with psychoanalysis right <laughs> freedom is one thing but democracy is is another right um, and democracy you know I love the way in which he pushed this question I'll say he'll say democracy now like what you think that we've achieved democracy <laughs> <laughs> right is this is this what we're going for <laughs> is this, is this a- anything that you think that you possess that then you can then hand over to another person i mean what kind of a fantasy is that <laughs> <laughs> it's a, pre- a, a, a powerful one that does away with anxiety right um you um you have a really uh wonderful um uh description, I think, of the position occupied by the analyst. And it is a very feminine position, uh, as you describe it. And it seems to hinge on um, a relationship with sort of the the sexual, the body. Um, I think you term it shame, decency, modesty, humility, prudence, Um, which seems, uh, it just, just, it spoke to me as as being at at the heart of, of, of my my stance, if if on a good day, um, could you? I don't know what I want. I just I just want to hear you talk more about that. I really I really was moved by uh, by that description. Um, I, don't, I remember, I remember um, a former supervisor of mine has been very important to um, me and my formation. We would have long discussions about the masochism of the analyst. Mm. And, 
you know, what about this is feminine or what does Lacan mean if he's going to collapse the feminine with castration, with masochism, with submission, with subjection? You know, like what does it mean to sort of load all of this onto the side of the analyst and and to feel these not as belabored terms, but to talk about it in terms of what it is that we have to take. And it is so much about a kind of impossible passivity, an impossible subjection to the discourse of a patient. You know, you just you just have to give yourself over to them and you have to give yourself over to contingency. Um, and and, you know, I, I know that people would be very upset by the idea of collapsing that with something so gendered as to say that it's feminine. But that made something possible for me interpretively. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know the, and it's in opposition, I think, to what Lacan construes as the problems of the phallus. Right. Right. And that we, 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 if anything, if there's anything that we should have worked through, it's the fantasy about the phallus. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. First, first and foremost. Right. First and foremost. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The, uh, the temptation, um, I think you, uh, the uh, someplace. Let me see if I can find the the quote here. Um, right about the kind of closure, um, the the fantasy of of closure, and um, that uh, you know, sort of getting rid of um, anything that's tenuous. Um, and it seems that the position of the analyst, as you describe it, is um, there. There is there is a a, a caution in a in a way that I. Uh, it provides room and space, um, but you really—you're right. We are having to take uh, or absorb um, a tremendous amount. You know, you have a, in the book um, you write about passion, courage, fidelity, fatigue, and weariness. <laughs> and these are, and I think that uh, that that that's right. That that there's a fatigue and a, and a weariness um, that comes um, from in from doing. Um, from being an analyst, uh, with from not knowing, it can be very exhausting. Um, but I really I appreciate um, that that that's your your approach. Um, and I guess from there, I was thinking about you have a a, a section on um, borderlines, which really jumped out at me. Um, it actually jumped out at me. I thought, what is this doing here? What's going on? You know, and um, you have a, a, a an outtake from a, a Kernberg session. Um, and I thought that I wondered about the way in which, um, I don't know if that was Kernberg himself or somebody he supervised that, that I thought that analyst must be pretty, pretty tired, uh, <laughs> at the end. But, but can you say something about getting, you know, this fantasy of getting the patient to, um, sign a contract to take responsibility? What, uh, how is this, how does this work within it, within, uh, analysis? I mean, what, what's going on with this? It struck me that it, you you do feel sympathy for the analyst. Oh my god! <laughs> but I also like I love this patient who's just like she's she's you know she's sticking it to him. Right, right. <laughs> um, and every contradiction she's gonna she's gonna sort of pull the contradiction of his sort of failing to hold the analytic position out of him. Mm-hmm. She's gonna she's gonna make it visible. Um, and I, you know, it was about that interplay between these two people and, and the idea that you can't force responsibility. I mean, we all know how difficult it is to take responsibility. 
Um, and, and this is also implicit in the idea of, of prudence, um, the prudence and modesty of the analyst. What kind of responsibility do we take as psychoanalysts? Um, and, and, you know, I know it's a difficult, I mean, in that, in that case vignette, just for your um, listeners, it's, it's a patient who sort of, they have to contract for safety because of a suicide attempt. And, you know, the, the technical questions of this, I sort of push aside. But I want to talk about the fact that we are immediately always put into the position of talking about what it means to take responsibility. Mm-hmm. And we know that analytically, this is, <laughs> this is what the, we have to work towards. So the idea that you could put this up front. <laughs> right. Beginning with responsibility. It's like, really? Yeah. <laughs> Me now? <laughs> How could I? <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was. Really, it, but it did jump out at me because I was thinking about the relationship, of course, between you know the the, the <laughs> but you know thinking back to I forget was it Elaine Sixou who had this essay that had the the sh- I remember it had sort of a frame of shoes around it. This is back, way back in the seventies. It was a, a French women's shoes and American women's shoes. They were sort of like lace ups and pumps, you know, or something. And then I was thinking about what's the relationship, you know, between the hysteric. Uh, and the borderline, which I think you were sort of, you know, because you are writing, you are sort of between two worlds, the French and the American, um, and the encounter uh, with with the borderline, um, as opposed to the hysteric. I found myself wanting to be uh, more hysterical than borderline, certainly, um, in in the reading of this. But do you have thoughts? Do you have thoughts about sort of the? I don't know, those those two, we don't really talk about hysteria much outside of the Lacanian scene here um, in uh, American psychoanalysis. Uh, is, is that your impression? It is my impression, although, you know, of course, sort of what I pitch is that when we're talking about the borderlines, we're talking about hysterics. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting about it is is not so much diagnosing them or defining them, but but showing how they sort of, tell you about what the analytic position needs to be. Mm-hmm. And they're constantly showing us um, where it is. Because I, you know, I think that for Lacan, what was so fundamental about thinking about hysteria is that it, it's at the beginning of our profession. I mean, it, it, we, psychoanalysis uh, comes to us through them, through what they came to say. I mean, it's, it's Anna O oh who named it the talking cure. Right. Um, and they will tell you when you become phallic if you want to put it that way, they will tell you when you've left the analytic position. They will tell you when you fail to hear their desire and instead you've tried to suture um, what they've said. You've tried to close it down. And the Lacanians are the only ones who um, I know of. I mean, I'm sure you could find it in many other places. I, I wouldn't want to say that they're the only ones, but they're the, they, for me, I found in their discourse this way of saying, you know, it is through them that we will learn who we have to be and how to listen. Mm -hmm. And I love that. It sort of takes it out of your hands and puts it into the patient. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, also recenters, I think your work is as an analysand. Now, Lacan does not stop at hysteria. He says, you know, we have to understand what it means then to analyze the hysteric. It'll tell us about this slight shift between what he calls the discourse of the, of the hysteric and the discourse of the analyst. Mm -hmm. Um, And for him, what's the travesty is that they get, they get caught up in their wounds, if you want to put it that way. They get caught up in their, um, their castration. Mm-hmm. And they want to believe that it can be made better. 
They want to believe that there is an impossibility. They want to believe that the sexual relation is possible, if you want to put it that mm-hmm. way. Um, and, and we help them see. We help them see the way in which this is an impossibility. Their desire is structured in relationship to these impossibilities, the constraints of their history, the constraints of the times in which they live. Um, but that there's, there's something very beautiful about their wishes, and they can make a life around them. Right. Uh, and, you know, more, more than anywhere, we do this through dreams, I think, where we see this sort of fascinating interplay of, of wish and impossibility, always. Um, you know, what you want in your dreams or what you come to see about what you want in your dreams, um, you know, then sort of smashes up against reality when the moment you wake up. <laughs> Every, <laughs> that's right <laughs> it's, it's a lot it's it's a huge it's a huge effort to wake up sometimes yeah uh, absolutely um is there anything that we haven't uh touched on um about the book that you wanted to say or any any because uh, we're we're coming oh we're actually we're at 50 minutes and 26 seconds it says here so we're <laughs> it's fine that we go over but is there anything that we didn't get to that you wanted to convey um uh you know or or say this is no i i guess the only thing that i um maybe would add is in the, the, I, the book is about desire, the sort of subtitle that's hidden, um, which I sort of asked to do by my publisher, is On Unconscious Desire and its Sublimation. Um, and I, I think I really did want to bring these two words back to the table, desire and sublimation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that they're very important words. And, and I, the thing that I love the most about being an analyst is, I think, seeing how deep desire runs. And then when you see the solutions that a patient makes for their life, um, whether it's in who they choose to love, how they choose to love them, or, you know, their fascinating work lives, it's just so bound up with this desire that's always already there. Right. And you don't have to then give them anything. You don't have to tell them anything. You don't have to make anything mean anything. And that's such a relief, you know, for the, all of the fatigue that I'm talking about of what it means to be an analyst, this, this is a real relief. And it's a relief that I found in asking or seeing psychoanalysis um, through Lacan. And, you know, it's what I wanted to convey in the book. And, and I think you convey it very well. But it is sort of interesting. It is a hidden um, subtitle. In fact, I read through the whole book and somehow missed that page. And then I somehow looking around and I said, wait a minute. Uh, oh, here's this subtitle. <laughs> I said, yeah, that's right. That's what it, that, that's what the book is, is, uh, is, um, turned toward and addressing, addressing itself to. Um, so, okay, we're out of time and I just wanted to say thank you very, very much for, um, spending time with us, um, at New Books and Psychoanalysis and, uh, have a feeling we'll be following you. Um, and uh, in, in following your career, because I, I would guess that there's going to be a lot more um, that you're going to have to say, which um, I look forward to to reading. And uh, and so thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.